0: This morning we are going to be kicking off our uh, four-part Advent sermon series entitled The Weary World Rejoices. I was drawn to this title uh, not just because O oh, Holy Night, is my favorite Christmas hymn, but uh, because I continue to just feel compelled in the times we're living through to, uh, to preach specifically to, to hearts living through these extraordinary times. And, and personally, I, I think that if I had just one word to sort of try and summarize what I'm, no, I'm feeling here towards the end of this crazy year that has been 2020, I think uh, the word that comes about as close as any other is weary. I'm tired. I'm tired of hosting Life Group on Zoom. I'm tired of canceling trips and family visits because of COVID. I'm tired of sometimes feeling like we're repeating the same day every day because we don't have things like even a commute to work or cardinals games or grant's farm or dining out at our favorite restaurant to sort of ba- break up the monotony i'm tired of living week to week with our decision making making plans for outdoor worship and then it's too cold and then we have to move inside and then we need to add a second service I'm tired of arguing over the relative risk posed by covid and the relative merits of the measures we're taking to try and mitigate it i'm try- tired of trying to have to explain to one member why we're asking you to wear a mask in church and to the next person why I'm not going to kick that first person out if their mask isn't fully covering their nose and their mouth. I'm tired of calling through the membership directory of the church three, four times to check in on folks who we haven't seen in person in eight months because I wish I could just do it in person, face to face, every Sunday like God intended. I'm tired. And I know that the weariness is by no means unique. To us pastors, I know you all are weary from talking with you, physically, mentally exhausted, tired, fatigued, impatient or dissatisfied. That's how the dictionary defines weariness. Kids, are you tired of online school? Are you dissatisfied with missing baseball season, which became soccer season and now basketball season, missing dance classes and piano recitals. My daughter Ellery's gymnastics gets canceled. We're dissatisfied with the way the world is right now. We're growing increasingly impatient as we long for the world to be different. And I am convinced that that is a good thing. It's a God thing, in fact, that God wants us to experience a kind of holy discontentment for as long as we live as exiles in this broken, fallen world. C.S. Lewis famously once said, if I find in myself a desire which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. Our dissatisfaction with this world ought to increase our longing for another one, for heaven, for our true home. And that longing truly seems to be at an all-time high these days. And that brings us to this season of Advent, As you may know, the word advent comes from the Latin adventus, which means coming or arrival, and it's come to refer to the four Sundays in the church calendar leading up to Christmas, the arrival of the baby Jesus in a manger in Bethlehem. But what you may not know is that originally in church tradition, this season of advent was connected less to Christ's past coming than it was to his future second coming as a king riding on the clouds coming to make all things new. And so God is inviting us during Advent not only to remembrance of the past, but also to anticipation of the future, to look not just back but forward, to wait and long and hope and pray with joyful expectation for Christ's second coming. And so every Sunday for the next four weeks here at West Hills, we're going to be examining a different dimension of weariness, What are the biggest causes that contribute to our tired dissatisfaction with the world? And I want to show you how each one of those factors is by no means unique to us today. We're going to hop in our time machine every Sunday, travel back some 2,025 years to the eve of Christ's first coming in order to better appreciate just what a weary world it really was back then back in Jesus's day but most importantly i want to point us to the joy that we find the weary world rejoices at Jesus's arrival his adventus in that humble stable and so we're going to let that joy fill us with hope even in the midst of our present weariness today because it reminds us and it reassures us of the joy that is still yet to come at Christ's second coming. And so the first facet of weariness for this morning that we're going to examine is waiting. Waiting produces weariness, doesn't it? If you've ever been forced to do the long distance relationship thing, you know what I'm talking about. You're in love Right, but you have to wait weeks or even months between visits. Talk about, I see some of y'all, you know, poking each other right now, remembering the, the, the good old days of that, that longing, that anticipation, and now you're stuck with each other. But, but you, you talk about impatient dissatisfaction. We know that feeling. Kids, any of you uh, ever ever feel, or maybe currently, right? As Christmas is approaching, you have a new toy, a new video game. That you're really looking forward to wanting to play with but your parents told you, you have to wait until christmas and whenever waited so long in line for something that you eventually realized there was no way it was ever going to be worth it last thanksgiving we were back in jackson with my family and that uh, friday evening after thanksgiving we made the mistake of trying to go out for dinner without a reservation back when you could do you know do this at one of our favorite restaurants which also happens to be everyone else's favorite restaurant in town. The Friday after Thanksgiving, it was like that Seinfeld episode, you know, where they spend the entire episode waiting for the table. They keep getting told just five more minutes, you're the next one on the list. Like an hour into waiting, you reach a point where you realize there's no way you're, you're even gonna be able to enjoy your food anymore, even if you do get a table eventually. You're going to wait another hour for the food to cook, but now you're so resentful, you're so upset about how long you've had to wait, you're not even going to enjoy it. And by then, you've already waited an hour. Like, you can't just leave. Waiting makes us weary. And first century Jewish believers knew this better than anyone. We get tired of waiting an hour in line these days or waiting a month for that new toy. Next season of our favorite show to stream online, God's people had waited 2,000 years for the Messiah. 2,000 years. You want to talk about weariness. But as we're going to see, although the wait may get long and although though the wait may get painful, Jesus is worth the wait. He's worth the wait. And that's, that's your big takeaway this morning. That's, that's the outline as well. You had to print your bulletins there um, early with thanksgiving but i didn't have time to put in three main points this morning three points from matthew chapter 1 verses 1-17 through 17. number one sometimes the weight is long number two sometimes the weight is painful but number three jesus is always worth the weight and so with that outline in mind would you stand with me one more time as you're able and turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. I'm going to read from the English Standard Version. We have uh, extra copies of that. If you don't have a Bible at the infobar, we'd love to give to you early Christmas present from West Hills. But hear the word of the Lord from Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shethil, and Sheltil, the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of Abud, and Abud, the father of Eliakim. And Eliakim, the father of Azor, and Azor, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Akim, and Akim, the father of Eliud, and Eliud, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Mathan, Mathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called Christ. And so all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. From David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you that you are a God who keeps his word. Not always in our timing, but in your own perfect timing. You are always faithful to keep your word, your promises. Father, help us this morning to wait on you. Help us to see Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God, our Messiah, our King, our Savior as being who He is, worthy of our waiting. Father, help us to wait on You this morning and trust in You to be faithful. You've never let us down until now and we know You won't start now. That we pray this in Christ's name and for your glory and our good, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Now, if you were with us back in January for our Tough Text sermon series, you will remember that I began that series with a message from 1 Chronicles, chapters 1 through 9, entitled, A Waste of Space, question mark, Genealogies, lists of measurements, and other seemingly trivial texts. And I gave you not one, not two, but seven reasons why God spends roughly 15 to 20% of his holy inspired scripture on things like genealogies and lists of measurements and now obsolete Old Testament laws. Genealogies like this one, which opens Matthew's gospel, which many of you were trying not to snooze through, few moments ago, they are vitally important because they prove that God cares. God cares, number one, about people. Number two, he cares about his plan. He cares about about the past, about plausibility, about particularities. He even cares about the prosaic, the mundane. But lastly, and maybe most importantly, God cares about what is most paramount, seven Ps, things that matter greatly. The paramount. And I want to suggest to you this morning that Jesus' genealogy, with all of its people, plan, past, plausibility, particularities, it is paramount. It matters greatly. Matthew begins in verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, why single out David and Abraham? It's because they were both crucial recipients of God's Old Testament covenant promises. We started Uh, the book of Genesis back um, at the beginning of this year in the spring, and we saw that one of the most common important descriptors of God in all of the Bible is that God is a covenant-keeping God. Our God makes promises, and he always keeps them. But God, as I just prayed, always keeps his promises in his own perfect, albeit sometimes unhurried, let's say, timing. Uh, the Apostle Peter tells us in the New Testament that the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises. However, Peter adds that with the Lord, a thousand years is as but a day. And so you'll have to excuse me when I claim in point number one of your, of your outline that sometimes the wait is long because I'm not God, you're not God, and so for people like me and you, a thousand years is as a thousand years. All right? God's people waited not just a thousand Jesus but 2,000. So speaking of being quick, I want to try and recap the entire Old Testament for you in the next 10 minutes because I want to remind us of just how long God's people really had waited on their promised Messiah, the anointed one, their Savior. See, Matthew traces his genealogy back to Abraham, but Luke in his gospel actually traces It all the way back to Adam. Matthew is writing primarily to Jews, and so he emphasizes Jesus' Jewishness, tracing him through Abraham, the father of the Jewish people. But Luke emphasizes Jesus' universality. He's the savior of the whole world. And so Luke, in chapter 3, takes us all the way back to Adam, the son of God. And indeed, God had first hinted Here we go, 10 minutes on the clock. God had first hinted at his promised Messiah all the way back with Adam in Genesis chapter 3. The so-called Proto-Evangelion, literally the first gospel, that after Adam and Eve disobeyed God and ate the forbidden fruit, God warned their tempter, Satan, the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. God promised to send an offspring, singular in the Hebrew, of Eve, born of a woman who would crush the serpent's head. But we soon discover that each of Eve's descendants is more sinful than the next. Her son Cain was the first murderer, followed a few generations later by Lamech, it was the first mass murdering wife abuser. Within just a few more generations, we hear, in chapter 6, that the wickedness of man was so great in the earth that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually, and the Lord regretted that he had even made man on the earth. And so God, in his mercy, sent a giant flood to stem this growing tide of sin and restart humanity through one righteous man, Noah. And God makes Noah another promise in Genesis chapter 9, never again to flood the earth. It's a common grace covenant that applies to everyone, indeed, to all of creation. But once again, within just a chapter of stepping off the ark, Noah himself is getting drunk and cursing his own son. And another chapter later, all of humanity is banding together to plot direct rebellion against God at the Tower of Babel. And so, God's people kept waiting. And God chooses a man named Abram. Noah's great 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 eight greats grandson some 350 years after Noah around the year 2000 BC now God made a special promise To him, the Abrahamic covenant recorded for us in Genesis chapter 12. I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. But Abraham struggled to believe this promise because he was already 75 years old and his wife Sarai still hadn't borne him a child. And another 15 years later after the promise, Abram was still childless. And so he and Sarai decide to take matters into their own hands. And Abram sleeps with Sarai's maidservant, Hagar, instead. And she gives him a son, Ishmael, the father of the nation of Islam. But God refused to give up on his plan or on Abram. And at the ripe old age of 100, God finally gives Abraham a son, Isaac. Now, for the sake of time, we're going to follow Matthew's list here and just hit the high points of Old Testament history. Abraham fathered Isaac, Isaac fathered Jacob, and Jacob fathered Judah and his brothers, one of whom was named Joseph, you might remember, who will be the focus of much of the rest of our study of Genesis when we return to that, God willing, in 2021 because God used him, Joseph, to save his family, all 12 brothers, the 12 tribes of Israel, from famine in Canaan, by relocating them to Egypt. But in Egypt, Jacob's sons reap the consequences of their sin, of having sold their brother into slavery, and in turn, God allows them to be enslaved in Egypt for 430 years. You want to talk about waiting a long time. God's people kept waiting. And so we skip ahead. Judah fathered Perez, Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram, Ram fathered Aminadab. And right around the time of Aminadab, a guy named Moses was born. Moses is not in Jesus' genealogy because he was from the tribe of, of Levi, not the tribe of Judah. But God called Moses to lead his people out of Egypt, and he did it and it's amazing it's like the most pivotal foundational story account in the old testament but once again the very next chapter god's people are already impatiently grumbling about how much better things were in egypt we want to go back and while god was on mount sinai with moses graciously giving his people the law to help guide them they were busy making an idol down below to worship instead and so God makes them wander in the desert another 40 years. God raises up Moses' successor Joshua to lead a new generation of his people back into the promised land, back into Canaan, and God commands Joshua to go through the entire land and eradicate all of the wicked nations and peoples now populating it. God warns him, If you fail to obey me, these nations will be a thorn in your side. They will not only come back to threaten you militarily, existentially, but spiritually. Your descendants will start to intermarry with theirs, and your descendants will fall away after their false gods. And that is exactly what we see happening for another 400 years. So God's people kept waiting. We skip ahead. Aminadab fathered Nashon and Nashon fathered Salmon and Salmon fathered Boaz and Boaz fathered Obed and Obed fathered Jesse. This is all during the period of the judges, God's people drifting farther and farther away from him until finally they reject God altogether, and they demand a human king. They want to be just like the other nations and again God warns them and again they ignore him and so God gives them King Saul and then And his mercy, God even gives them a good king, like David, Jesse fathered David the king. And David was by far the greatest king in all of Israel's 464-year, 22-king dynasty of the southern kingdom of Judah. He was the, the greatest king. And David was an adulterous murderer. And yet God made another covenant with him. I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom and he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Everybody thought the prophecy was about Solomon because he would build the temple, a house after God's name. And yet, this promised king who would reign forever, unfortunately for the Israelites, that description doesn't fit any of David's immediate descendants. Solomon's reign didn't last forever. The kingship didn't last forever. And for over four centuries, the offspring of David mostly just got worse and worse and worse down through his line. 400 years. And so God's people kept waiting. David fathered Solomon illegitimately. Solomon, the polygamist idolater, fathered Rehoboam, the evil tyrant who split the kingdom, tore it in two. Things just got worse from there. Rehoboam fathered Abijah, who fathered Asaph, fathered Jehoshaphat, Joram, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, Manasseh, Amos, Josiah, Jeconiah, and his brothers. At the time of the deportation to Babylon, that was in 587 BC, the kingdom, its people, had become so wicked, so corrupted, so godless, that like a good father who lovingly disciplines his children, God allowed Judah to be destroyed and its survivors to be taken into exile in babylon so much for the eternal kingdom right all hope seemed to be lost and god's people struggled to keep waiting until there's this prophet named daniel writing right at the time Of the exile to Babylon sixth century BC and he received a vision from God while he was in exile in Babylon and in that vision God showed Daniel that his people would remain in exile another 70 years they had to keep waiting but then God would allow them to return home to Judah but then God gave Daniel an even more astounding revelation in chapter 9 we hear 77s decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression to put an end to sin and to atone for iniquity to bring in everlasting righteousness to seal both vision and profit and to anoint a most holy place know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince. There shall be seven sevens, and after the 62 sevens, an anointed one shall be cut off. Now, we could spend a whole sermon just unpacking this one prophecy, and God willing, one day we will. But here's the Cliffs Notes interpretation for this morning God showed Daniel, almost a century before it happened, God showed Daniel that from the time that King Artaxerxes of Persia issued the decree freeing the last of the Jewish exiles to return home and giving the priest Ezra permission to reinstate worship in the temple, that decree was issued 84 years later after Daniel wrote this in the year 454 BC. And from that time until an anointed one, the Hebrew there is Messiah, would be cut off that that time span would be another 483 years, 49 sevens. God's people had to keep waiting, 483 years plus the 70 when he got the vision during exile. But if, if you're good at math, do you want to guess when Jesus was crucified? When Jesus put an end to sin? When he atoned for iniquity? When he brought in everlasting righteousness Like Daniel chapter 9 prophecy if you do the math the year was exactly 29 AD now some of y'all get excited about this you you can't wait to just get out there witness to someone because every time you hear about God's faithfulness in the Old Testament God's fulfillment of prophecy so precisely so miraculously supernaturally Five centuries later in the person of Jesus, it it rekindles that fire of faith in you. But others of you right now need someone to nudge you back awake. Because after just 10 minutes of Old Testament history, you're like, Pastor Will, I know the story. We we all know how the story ends. Uh, we, we, We know you end every sermon the same with the gospel. Jesus said, all the scriptures point to me. He's right there in verse 16. Of Matthew chapter 1, Jesus was born, Who was called the Christ. Can't we just skip to the point? can we just skip to the good news, to, the, to, to Jesus? Well, here's the point. Point number one is that sometimes the wait is long. Sometimes you've you, you got to wait a long time while I read a bunch of names in a genealogist. Sometimes you've got to wait a long time. through. Uh, if you thought it was long ten minutes of, of the recap of Old Testament history, try waiting 2,000 years through it. I blame the internet, our attention spans are pathetic, but 2,000 years for a Messiah, in all seriousness, I, I hope that this brief history gives us a better appreciation for just how weary God's people had become by the time that Jesus finally did arrive. I want to give you a visual for it. Here's a timeline, you won't be able to make out any of the writing or anything, but you now, we can post this online later and you can zoom in. Um, a timeline for, for all of the history that I just covered with you. Uh, you see that little purple cross there in the bottom corner, hiding, squeezed in? That's the relative length of time that the Bible spends on the entire New Testament, right? right? The, b- between those lines. So all the rest of it was waiting. It was waiting. God's people were understandably weary. They were tired of waiting. That's why in John chapter 6, after Jesus miraculously feeds the 5,000, the crowd comes out and they attempt to take him by force to make him their king because they're tired of waiting for a king. And they know God's promises. They know that the serpent's head has not yet been crushed. They know that all, of, all the peoples have not yet been blessed through Abraham. They know that Solomon's kingdom was not an everlasting one. They know about Daniel's prophesied Messiah. And so after 2,000 years, they're tired of waiting. And oh, by the way, this is all while they're being oppressed by the Egyptians, the Canaanites, the Philistines, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, the Syrians, the Romans. Take your turn in line to beat up on God's people. God, when is our triumphant king ever gonna come and set us free. Sometimes the wait is long, friends. I know I've been pretty pessimistic and harsh on us modern day folks and our attention spans, our lack of patience, our our lack of long-sufferingness. It's a virtue the Bible talks about, but let me try and be more sympathetic. Sometimes the wait really is long. What are you waiting on this morning? Kids, it really stinks that you haven't gotten to hang out with your friends in person for over eight months now, some of you. That stinks. It's the nicest word I'm allowed to use from the pulpit for it. It stinks. It really stinks for all of us that we still have virtually no idea when all of this is going to be over and we're going to return to some semblance of normal life. When the vaccine is released, when they can, you know, produce enough for mass distribution, when we achieve herd immunity, when are we gonna be able to take off the mask and start hugging one another again? Next spring, next summer? Some people say never. Some people say masks are here to stay, that handshakes are gonna go the way of the dinosaurs, as far as a socially acceptable form of greeting. Maybe your waiting has nothing to do with COVID this morning. Maybe you're waiting for healing from a chronic illness, lifelong illness, lifelong addiction. Maybe you're waiting on God to provide you a husband, a wife, a child. Maybe you're waiting on God to answer you, give you a sense of calling. Maybe you're waiting on him to open a door, waiting on him to, to change a loved one's heart. He keeps rejecting the Lord. What are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? Sometimes the wait is long. God's people waited 42 generations. According to Matthew chapter 1, 2,000 years for Jesus, and we've been waiting another 2,000 years since then for his return. I don't know about you, but my heart these days cries, come, Lord Jesus, come, a little bit more desperately than it did. A year ago. And maybe that's part of the point. Maybe that's part of God's purpose in all of this with COVID. That waiting produces longing and God longs for us to long for him. Maybe that's part of the point. But sometimes the wait is long. And sometimes the wait, number two, is painful. I'm not going to comb back through all of that Old Testament history again and belabor this this second point. The entire history of God's people leading up to Christ is one of suffering. But I will point out this though quickly. In in Matthew's genealogy, he goes out of his way to point out the messiness of Jesus' bloodline. Matthew is clearly not a Malfoy you know, from Harry Potter, uh, obsessed with the pureness of Jesus's pedigree. He, he could have just said in verse three that Judah fathered per- Perez and Zerah, but instead he goes out of his way to remind us that he did so by Tamar via incestuous prostitution. The same thing with Rahab in verse five, another prostitute. Ruth, verse five, was a Moabite. Jews weren't even allowed to eat with them. Matthew makes sure we don't forget David's affair in verse six. David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. <laughs> and you, you just don't include guys like Rehoboam and Manasseh and Ahaz in a genealogy that you're trying to impress people with. These are not good people. Even the best figures here, David and Abraham, again, were murderous adulterers, faithless liars, respectively, they were famous sinners. As David Platt says, all in all, this was one crooked family tree. Not only was the wait for Jesus long, it was painful. It was downright cringeworthy at times. What about your wait? Some of us have been waiting a long time for things, sometimes a long, painful time for things. You know the only thing worse? Lighten the mood for a minute worse than being stuck on hold for a half hour on, on the phone with customer service. It's being stuck on hold for half an hour with Felice Navidad playing on repeat in the background, right? You can't mute it because then you won't know when they pick up and connect you. Sometimes the wait is painful. Why? I love how Platt answers it. He says, why are these people included in the line? the messiness, the painfulness of Jesus' backstory. Why were they included? In the line that leads to Christ. He says for the same reason your name is included in the line that leads from Christ. Solely because of the sovereign grace of God. Praise be to God that he delights in saving sinful, immoral outcasts like you and me. The family tree might be crooked, but praise God that he uses crooked sticks to draw straight lines. If God only used straight sticks, friends, you and I would be discarded. Along with Abraham and David and the rest of them. But praise God for his long-sufferingness, for his patience, for his undeserved mercy toward us. God's mercy, of course, finds its climactic fulfillment in verse 16 in the arrival of Jesus. And if you know anything about Jesus, friends, you know that he was worth every second of the wait. Galatians 4.4 says, When the fullness of time had come, not a second too soon and not a second too late, God sent forth his Son. born of a virgin. And God's people and the entire weary, weary world finally rejoiced. The angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people, not just the Jews who've been waiting, even the people who didn't know they're supposed to be waiting get included. That's how merciful God is. The Gentiles Remember God's promise to Abraham. I'm going to bless all nations through you. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And some 33 years later on a Roman cross, at just the right time, not a moment too soon, not a moment too late, Christ died for the ungodly to save us. Not from Rome, not from suffering, not from waiting, but to save us from our sin. The Apostle Paul goes on to say in that same chapter, Romans 5, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son. More than that, we also now rejoice. In God. We rejoice through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Friends, if you have not yet received Jesus as your Lord, and your Savior, your reconciler between a holy, perfect God and a sinful, broken you, let me implore you this morning, in Jesus' name, do not Wait a moment longer. Trust in Jesus today and you will be saved. His joy, His eternal joy can be yours this morning and forevermore if you will but give your life to Jesus. And for those of us who have done that already and entrusted our lives to Jesus, I want to leave you this morning... This difficult, sometimes impatience-inducing, but hope-filled reminder that as we live out the rest of our sojourning here in this world as exiles, in a weary, broken world, awaiting Christ's return and final redemption of all of creation, hear this blessed reminder Yes, sometimes the wait is long. Yes, sometimes the wait is painful. But Jesus is always worth the wait. Amen. Let's pray.